0: morning comes from Revelations chapter 15 verses 5 to 16 no verses 5 and forward and then 16 verse 7 after this I looked and the sanctuary of the tent of witness in heaven was opened and out of the sanctuary came the seven angels with the seven plagues clothed in pure bright linen with golden sashes around their chests And one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. And the sanctuary was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. And no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple telling the seven angels, go pour out to the earth and the seven bowls of the the wrath of God. So the angel went out and poured out the bowl on the earth, and harmful, painful sores came upon the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. The second angel poured out his bowl into the sea, and it became like the blood of a corpse, and every living thing died that was in the sea. The third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of water, and they became blood. And I heard the angel in charge of the waters say, "'Just are you, O holy one,' who is and who was, for you brought these judgments. For they have shed the blood of the saints and the prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. And I heard the altar saying, Yes, Lord, God the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. May God bless the reading of his word. Children ages three years to kindergarten are now dismissed for the little landing.
1: Good morning, faith family at the landing. Let's pray one more time. I need God's help as we take up revelation again. Father, speak through your powerful word, the glories of your son, the wonders of mercy in him, the horrors of wrath, and the zeal that you want to awaken in us to live for the cause of Christ while we yet live in this life and on this earth. Thank you for the songs, thank you for the prayers, thank you for the scripture, thank you for your spirit dwelling within us and among us now, thank you for getting us safely here and thank you now for pouring into us the privilege of worshiping over your word by your Holy Spirit. We ask for the outpoured Holy Spirit upon us now for his help, for Christ's glory and praise, for our joy and for our good. It's in Christ's name I pray, amen. This story comes from a book by Nikolai Velimirich, Mysticism in the Eastern Church. Comrade Luna Chatsky was lecturing in Moscow's largest assembly shortly after the Bolshevik Revolution in the year 1918. The comrade's theme was religion, opium of the people. He proclaimed all the Christian mysteries are but myths. He said, supplanted by the light of science, Marxist science is the light that more than substitutes for the legends of Christianity. Lunachatsky spoke at great length over two hours, and when he had finished, he was so pleased with himself that he asked if anyone in the audience of some 7,000 had anything to add. A 26-year-old Russian Orthodox priest, just ordained, stepped forward. First, he apologized to the commissar for his ignorance and awkwardness. The commissar looked at him scornfully, I give you two minutes and no more. I won't take very long, the young priest said. He mounted the platform, turned to the 7,000 in the audience, and in a loud voice declared, Christ is risen. And with One voice, the vast audience of 7,000 roared in response, Christ is risen indeed. Christ's death and resurrection are no mere religious story that occupy one single holiday. They are the very life with which humanity believes and lives forever. They are the life of this church and of my heart and of yours. They are the life that we live by. The resurrection of Christ is our confidence, our hope, The world's most dangerous doctrine, it is the confession of our weakness and our boast in strength. For the death and resurrection of Christ, we will be most opposed. And the loving and prizing of it, as highly as that Russian Orthodox priest loved it and prized it, we will be as opposed as he, if not more. It's ironic and sad and interesting that many of the doctrines that defined Soviet Union and the Soviet era have migrated, been baptized into materialistic forms, and now inform much of the culture in America. Don't be oblivious or blind to it. Christ is still risen. Christ is risen indeed. And those who prize that doctrine and hold it dear and lift it high and marvel at it, will be the most opposed in this culture today and going forward. Also those who prize the doctrine of the death and resurrection of Christ will also be the ones who can most highly worship God for his wrath upon those who reject it. Does that feel intuitive to you? I hope it does. I hope you can feel the weight of it. I hope you can say, the more that I prize the death and resurrection of Christ, the more fitting and just and true and and suitable it seems to me that God should infinitely punish those who reject it. Conversely, for clarity, if I'm bored with or think little of the death and resurrection of Christ, then I will read the passages of God's wrath upon the world, and they will seem so cruel and severe, and I won't understand. But if I love and cherish to its fullest height and value the death and resurrection of Christ, I look at the rejection of it on the earth and I say, just and true is all your wrath, O God. Further and more so, if I cherish the death and resurrection of Christ and see how fitting it is for God to execute wrath upon those who reject it, then how wide and broad and deep and Passionate will be my thankfulness for His mercy to one like me. For I deserve to be under the wrath of God just as they. It's only by God's mercy that I love and cherish His death and resurrection, the death and resurrection of His Son. Here in this passage that Ed just read, Revelation 15, verses 5 through 8, flowing into chapter 16, verses 1 through 7, My aim in this exhaustive, powerful, dense, rich passage is to help elevate how highly you marvel and delight in the resurrection and death of Christ. And how suitable it seems then that God would apply his wrath upon all who have rejected it. And how wonderful and relieving and healing and hope-giving and marvel-awakening the mercy of God is toward one like me who deserves such wrath. In Revelation, by way of summary, you might remember that chapters 12, 13, and 14 were the elevation of an unholy trinity. It took three chapters for the dragon and the beast, which we saw as probably governmental structures, and the image of the beast, which is religious structures that support and and. and, and align with those governmental structures. Those three unholy members of the Trinity, the dragon, the beast, and the image, were elevated in chapters 12, 13, and 14. Now here in chapter 15, 16, and 17, they are all de-elevated. They are all struck down. Bang, bang, bang in three chapters. They went up, now they're coming down. And it's so encouraging to see the way the book of Revelation is written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. It's thrilling and eye-opening to see that God will have mighty final and complete victory over the dragon, the beast, and its image. That's what we're seeing happen right before our very eyes. The true and holy trinity is replacing the wicked and unholy trinity. We saw at the beginning of chapter 15 in in the message before the resurrection holy week that seven angels came forward with seven plagues, which are the last. That's Revelation 15, 1. The idea is that we're summarizing and climaxing these three series of seven. First, there was seven seals in which the church itself was sealed while God reveals his will for the end of times. And then the seven trumpets in which the church is called to trumpet forth the gospel even while God trumpets forth and declares his end for the close of time. And then now we're arriving at the seven bowls or the seven plagues poured out in bowls. These are the outpouring and the applying of God's wrath to the earth for the end of times. Each one is a picture of the same reality from a different perspective with deeper and richer insight into God's plan for the end of time. Christ alone was worthy to unseal This plan, And now we're exploring it and seeing everything the Word of God has to teach us on it and to awaken in us this this joy, this thankfulness, this wonder and glory of the death and resurrection of Christ, which is my rescue from it. And also the cause for which it feels and becomes so painful only for a brief time in my life. And then the glory of the death and resurrection of Christ, for which I will praise Him forever and ever, including how it's applied in wrath to unbelievers. These seven bowls are God's perfect wrath, yet I want you to see that in God's perfect wrath, leveled in completion at its fullest intensity, even here, even here, and this sort of surprised me as I studied this, even here you can find clear indications of God's mercy mingled in, laced in, to his final application of wrath on the earth. The wrath of God, it seems clearly, is preparation for Christ's final coming and for the new heavens and the new earth and the great victory that God will achieve. But we're told several times in these chapters, verse 1 of chapter 15, we're told it again in chapter 16, and then uh, it shows up again, that this is the completion, the conclusion of God's wrath on the earth. It doesn't mean his wrath doesn't continue in hell, it does. There's more of the book of Revelation to go, we'll read about that in subsequent chapters, but it means his sevenfold bowls, the complete number of seven is completed here in what he pours out on the earth in these seven bowls. We'll look at three of them today, the next four next Lord's Day, Lord willing. There are three paragraphs that Ed read. I've given a title to each. Here's my titles. This is just guideposts for you to see how I've studied this. Not necessarily the most helpful, just my effort, feeble as it is. In chapter 15, verses 5 through 8, I see God's glorious wrath in mercy's fulfillment. God's glorious wrath in mercy's fulfillment. You might even say, Why would you call wrath glorious? And how does that relate to mercy's fulfillment? You'll see. God's glorious wrath in mercy's fulfillment. The second paragraph is verses one through four of chapter 16, and I've entitled it God's Command, Bowls of Wrath and Mercy's Repentance. God's Command, Bowls of Wrath and Mercy's Repentance. And the third paragraph, verses 5 through 7 of chapter 16, God's holiness brings just judgment and mercy's relief. God's holiness brings just judgment and mercy's relief. So let's look at each of these paragraphs and see how these titles unfold. My aim again is for you to have a high, high view of the death and resurrection of Christ because of the worth of Christ enabling you to agree and to praise God, even for his wrath, and to cherish his mercy toward you more highly than you may yet do. Look at verses 5 through 8 again with me out of chapter 15. John has a vision. It says, After this I looked, and that's why we begin here. And the sanctuary of the tent of witness in heaven was opened. And out of the sanctuary came the seven angels with the seven plagues, clothed in pure bright linen with golden sashes round their chests. And one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever and the sanctuary was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power and no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished so notice the features they stick out especially when you read in the original language but it's stunning even in English that the tent is mentioned Never before is the tent mentioned. Here's the tent of the sanctuary of witness. This is vocabulary that's used from Exodus. The tent of witness. Remember Moses met with God in the tent out in the wilderness. That was the place of of God's wrath coming down. It was also the place of his glory. It was also the place of his mercy for forgiveness of sins and the receiving of sacrifice. This shouldn't surprise us because back in chapter 15, just a few verses before, The angels and all of heaven, all the people gathered around who had not taken the mark of the beast, they all sang the song, remember? It's called the Song of the Lamb, but it was also called the Song of Moses, verse 3. So already, the vision given to John is to say, there's a connection here between the final wrath of God at the end of time, seven bowls, seven plagues, and the exodus, the tent of witness, the Song of Moses. Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God Almighty. Just just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. One massive difference is Moses was singing over national ethnic Israel. Now there being an example and a forerunner of all the true Israel, all the nations, that has expanded. Now he's King of the nations, says the Song of the Lamb. Then come the seven plagues. This is the first time God's wrath is called plagues in the book of Revelation. Plagues reminds us of exactly what God did against Egypt and Pharaoh, the ten plagues. Seven means perfection here, divine perfection. Ten means complete earthly destruction back in Egypt. Again, there's an undeniable connection between the exodus and its fulfillment here at the end of days. Look how the angels are dressed. It says they have bright, pure linen, which is always clothing reserved for priests. And golden sashes around their chest. It's exactly the way Christ himself is dressed in Revelation 1. These angelic messengers are coming out dressed like priests just the way Christ is. He's the one they represent. He sent them and they come doing his bidding. And then the bowls. Four living creatures give to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of wrath. These are the bowls that represent all of God's wrath mingled together with our prayers. Just like the incense in the tent of witness back in Exodus, so also here the bowls are the combination of the wrath of God and the prayers of the saints. Meaning, let the prayers of God's people continue forever. Never wasted. Never flagging. Always praying Let your heart always be pouring, as it were, more and more and more into those bowls. Think of the influence your prayers have. Never once a prayer thought, uttered in any language, is wasted by God, but heard, captured, mingled together with his wrath. And then in these seven bowls, poured out upon the earth. Look at the role that you and I as believers have in the end of days, the completion of God's wrath. Then, verse 8, the glory, and the sanctuary was filled with the smoke and the glory of God, and from his power no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. This is just like the tent of meeting, the sanctuary of witness. This is where the glory of the Lord is so powerful that no flesh can come near him without being destroyed. This is the glory of the Lord on its full display in heaven, and no one can come in and be a part of God's presence until His wrath has been fully poured out, first upon Christ for all who believe, and upon the earth for those who do not believe. All the Bible and all of Revelation is realizing exactly who God is and what He's done throughout history and throughout time. See here an unmistakable connection of realization where the forerunner of the exodus experience God's people protected even though plagues were falling and God's enemies were being destroyed through the red sea God was saving and rescuing his people so also that's the the image we anticipate in the age to come in, in the conclusion of this age bringing us into the age to come this is mercy to us in that everything's happening here just as God led His Israelite people to experience so long ago and just as He promised would be fulfilled in the days to come. God's wrath is being prepared, yes, but the mercy is that all of God's protection for us is realized in the person of Jesus Christ. You desire His presence. You desire to know Him. You desire to be near Him. You desire to come near this glory and this smoke and this presence of the Lord. You desire to come before Him and know that there is no condemnation for you, for you are in Christ Jesus. His wrath is not poured out on you, but rather on your behalf it's been poured out upon Christ. Every pursuit of sin, it's been said is actually a pursuit of God in a wicked journey or path or method. Every person who's ultimately pursuing some sinful idea or sinful habit or sinful addiction or sinful pathway is really hoping, whether they know it or not, to try to find something of this glory and presence of God. Yet in our sin... Apart from God's enabling grace and power, we continue in self destructive patterns of evil that ultimately realize God's glory in the form of His wrath and not in His mercy. You can join me in stepping back and seeing the wonder of the power of Christ. He is the Lamb who is pointed to by the sanctuary of witness, the golden sashes, the bowls of incense, the prayers of the saints, it all points to Christ. The second paragraph is verses 1 through 4 of chapter 16. I called it God's command, bowls of wrath and mercy's repentance. Look at it with me. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple telling the seven angels, Go! Pour out on the earth and the seven bowls of the wrath of God. I think it's the voice of Christ, actually. That's why he uses the phrase the wrath of God. I think it's the voice of Christ saying pour out the wrath of God. So the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth and harmful and painful sores came upon the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. The second angel poured out his bowl into the sea and it became like the blood of a corpse and every living thing died that was in the sea. The third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of water and they became blood. God's voice commands at the end of days, and His wrathful bulls are poured out, all three of them here. The first one is poured out, and everything in the sea is turned to blood. It, it reminds us of the similar plagues that were poured out on Egypt so many millennia ago. Mercifully, or, or, without mercy, killing everything in the sea, meaning everything in the sea now becomes toxic because the sea itself is blood. It, it means no sailing It means no fishing, it means no livelihood, it means no one can even go near the sea. The sea itself becomes dangerous. It's an intensification of God's disdain for the evil on the earth. It it becomes an image, a picture of the wrath of God against sin. Just before that, a bowl was poured out causing sores and harmful boils and wounds on the skin. And how fitting it was if someone said, I want the mark of the beast so that I can buy and sell and become rich. I want the mark of the beast on my skin. And now God says, how just and true is my wrath. Your skin will have boils on it. How many kinds of sin are, are related to skin How many kinds of sin come at my thinking my skin is more valuable than someone else's and so I disdain them for theirs? How many kinds of sin are awakened by, by, by evil and, and lustful and covetous desires for skin, mine or someone else's? God says, your skin is going to have harmful boils on it. It's going to be painful. My wrath is just and fitting and appropriate upon human beings because my bowl of wrath is poured out on people's skin. One interpreter, several actually, looked at this passage and said, this is the de-creating of the earth. It's a painful thought. struck me. I had to stop writing, and my my writing was going askew, but I was wondering, what does it mean for God to decreate the earth? What does that mean? He has absolute supremacy and ownership over the earth. He created it in Genesis. He upholds it by the word of his power. And here he says, I want the whole world to see how wrathful I am against sin. So I am going to cause boils on people's skin and I'm going to cause the sea to become blood. And they're going to retreat. They're going to run to the the inner lakes of fresh water and to the streams and to the springs. There they can at least drink fresh water. But then the third bowl comes. And now it's not the salt water of the seas that's turned to blood. It's actually the springs, the drinking water, the lakes and the rivers and the streams. Now nothing can live. No vegetation, no animals, no human beings can live. Everybody will die. This bowl is is severe because it means essentially there is a killing of everyone who caused the blood to be spilled of His prophets and the saints. Where is the mercy in these three bowls? Where is the mercy in these three bowls? I say mercy because the intention of these three bowls, as well as the four to follow, is that God would show how gloriously valuable He is in His Son, His death and resurrection of His Son, And therefore, how evil it is to reject the death and resurrection of His Son. We're supposed to look at palm fronds and our hands and each other. We're supposed to look at children and snow and melting of snow and sunshine and sky and galaxies and genomes. And we're supposed to say, isn't God Powerful and great and glorious and kind to have made such a thing? You're supposed to look at an egg and say, what a wonderful invention. Thank you, God. He decreates all the good he created to say, this is what I think about sin, all sin. Yours and mine. In all of the bowls that God pours out in destruction upon the earth, these and the four to follow next week, he intends for repentance. Scoot your eyes forward down chapter 16 quickly to verses 8 and 9. The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun. It was allowed to scorch people with fire. They were scorched by the fierce heat. They cursed the name of God who had power over these plagues. They did not repent and give him glory even to the very last, even to the very end, God is still embedding in His bowls of wrath the intent of mercy for repentance. But the unbelievers would not. They kept cursing and refusing to give God glory. Can you imagine? There's there's blood in every sea and ocean. There's blood in every stream and lake. There's blood everywhere. Everyone is dying. No one has anything to eat nor feed each other. And according to the fourth bowl, we'll look at more carefully next time, the sun is scorching down now because there's no trees, and there's nothing to build with, and there's no shelter. There's only last breaths, and with those last breaths, unbelievers are cursing God, and they will not repent of their evil. It's a glorious reality that when God comes, into the life of a person. He does not use his wrath mainly to create repentance in them. His wrath mainly encourages and awakens a desire for repentance, but repentance happens when God in his nature is revealed not as owning and being of the nature of wrath, but really in His nature of being and owning the existence of love. That might sound confusing, but here's what I mean. Repeatedly, the Bible says over and over, God is love. It's His essence. It's His nature. The Bible never says God is wrath. Never once does it say God is wrath. Wrath is a preparation for us to help value and desire and be eager for His love. Wrath does not in and of itself have the capacity to create repentance. How does repentance happen? Listen to Romans 2. Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every man of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. will be revealed. What creates repentance in the human heart? The context is wrath, surely. The the reality of the possibility and the certainty even that God will bring wrath against sin. Yes, that's the context, but what creates repentance in you right now, for you to walk out of this room or even before you walk out of this room to have repentance happen in your heart, you must see the love and kindness and patience of God. May Christ open your eyes even now to see that in His death and resurrection there is supreme forbearance, patience, and kindness offered and, in fact, achieved for you upon the cross. When God commands bowls of wrath, He offers mercy's repentance. Does it not cause you to worship God to realize that at the very last, at the very end, the final round of seven, He's pouring out bowls of wrath and He has every right to just simply pour out wrath of destruction on the earth. He'd be fully right to do so. And yet, even then, He highlights more than once that the people who are under it would not repent. Finally, look at verses 5 through 7 of chapter 16. God's holiness brings just judgment and mercy's relief. And I heard the angel in charge of the waters say, Just are you, O holy one, who is and who was, for you brought these judgments, for they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It is, it is what they deserve. And I heard the altar saying, Yes, Lord God, the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. I understand the angel, one of the angels who poured out one of the bowls, the angel in charge of the waters, he is saying, God, you are just and true In your holiness, you are right to pour out your wrath upon those who killed the saints and the prophets. It's what they deserve. Pour out your wrath. That's an appropriate way to pray and to think. But remember always when you pray or think through even this passage that you and I are the ones who would have, apart from grace, killed the prophets and the saints. And we too would have all of the bowls of wrath in Revelation 16 poured out on us, if not for Christ. In pleading for God's mercy for His cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, Abraham praise this, Far be it from you, O God, to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be it from you, O God, shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just. Genesis 18. Indeed, God always does. What is just? He is holy, and all His judgments are just and true. And the higher you think and value and marvel at the death and resurrection of Christ, the more fitting it will seem to you that God do justly, even when it means wrath. Where's the mercy in this? Where's the mercy? Look at verse 6. The very saints and prophets, as it were, For they have shed the blood of saints and prophets. You have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. The unbelievers were bloodthirsty for saints and prophets. They hated them and they killed them. And as it were, they were drinking their blood. And now he's saying, the waters of the ocean, the waters in your streams and in your faucets and in your ponds, they are all blood. All you have is blood to drink. Not that they will drink blood, but that they will die, for they will have no water to drink. It's the fulfillment of the prayer of so many martyrs and saints who have in fact been killed for their faith in Revelation chapter 6. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And in fact, now it's come to pass in this third bowl. It means ultimately that you and I do not have the permission or the need To take vengeance ourselves against those who have harmed us or those we love. Oh, the temptation is great, isn't it? To find ways to bring about difficulty, even to use careful, clever speech, or to even find ourselves taking for ourselves the, the brief satisfaction of some vengeance against those whom we believe to have wronged us. Here the Bible says, just as these martyrs, saints, praying under the altar in Revelation 6, see here in chapter 16 the fulfillment of their prayer, God, would you avenge the blood that was spilled from us and the killing of our lives upon those who dwell on the earth? So Paul says in Romans chapter 12, verse 19, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. If you're convinced as I am that the wrath of God is coming someday, then you will say, Lord, for all the persons who have ever wronged me or those whom I love, would you be merciful even as you expose that sin as covered under the blood of Christ, praise His name, and forgiven, or as worthy of being trampled upon by your wrath forever. I understand Revelation 16 to be the same described event near the end of days as Paul describes to the Thessalonians in 2 Thessalonians 1. Listen, this is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with His mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might when He comes on that day to be glorified in His saints, to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. God's just right crushing of unbelief will be, as Paul says in 2 Thessalonians 1, to the believer, a relief. There's where the mercy is. A tremendous relief. A tremendous sense that everything that was wrong is now made right. Everything that was covered is now exposed. Every secret backroom conversation is now shouted from the rooftops. Every suffering has been eased and replaced with God's rest. Every injustice compensated for, every disordered thing set in order. There's where the relief comes from. And grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us. How long can you wait for the relief? If you took these three paragraphs, and if you looked carefully at what they are saying in all the detail of the beauty of God's Word, you would see three R words. The first at the end of chapter 15 is realized. Exodus in the final events, the mercy of Christ is realized, even in the wrath of God. The second is repentance. Even in the wrath of God, at the very end, to the very last drop, God says, and you still won't repent, meaning you could. And He expects it. And there's still yet time. Realized repentance and now relief. There is coming relief. If you feel this anxiety, this churning, this uneasiness that secrets are going on in secret. Truth is not being told. Lies are still carrying the day. They travel much faster than the truth seems to. If, you, if you're in this moment in your life where you say, yes, but when will I be defended? When will my life actually be seen for what it really is and even my intentions of my heart? Leave avenging or vengeance to the Lord. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord, I will repay. There's mercy embedded in each of these experiences of God's wrath, even this most severe experience of His wrath, maybe in the whole Bible, maybe in all of time. The fitting suitableness of His wrath upon sin feels right, it feels good, it feels important, it feels sober, it feels just because we say the cross and the resurrection of Christ are so precious that to reject them is worthy of such wrath. This beast and this dragon and this image, the three of the unholy trinity, are being crushed and being torn down and being obliterated and destroyed rightly because God says he is the one true trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The unholy trinity must be destroyed. And it's happening. It's happening all over the world. Even now in this country and maybe even in our community. Christ says, apart from me, you would be inside that unholy trinity. You'd be be worshiping the beast and you'd be bowing before the image and you'd be functioning in the lies and in the stolen power of the dragon. But because of Christ we're not under wrath. Because of Christ, we're not going to be judged under condemnation. Because of Christ and because of the cross of Christ, we are absolutely free from wrath and from condemnation. And we, therefore, can live in freedom and enjoy and empower all the days of this life, however short it is, no matter what difficulties come to us, and say, I trust that my Savior and His message of mercy will be fully realized. I trust that I will be granted the gift to repent where it's needed, and I trust that I will experience the relief that God promises. You know, no matter how many people make the claim, there are no such thing as atheists. Not a person, not a human being on the face of the earth actually is convinced in the core of their being that there is no God. Not even that comrade Luna Chatsky who spoke for two hours against the silliness of Christianity. Not even he is an atheist in his heart. How do I know that? In 1982, at the height of the Cold War, when the Soviet Union and all of its atheistic beliefs was at its apex, strongest, broadest, most powerful, most influential, biggest military, Then-Vice President George Bush Sr. traveled to Moscow, Russia, to represent the United States at the funeral, a state funeral, of the President of Russia, Leonid Brezhnev. In the most communist nation, at the most communist time in history, the most communist leader, Leonid Brezhnev, was now dead, and he lay in a casket, and there was going to be a funeral, and so the United States sent Vice President George Bush. Brezhnev had built up the military of the Soviet Union and in the process had destroyed the economy. There was poverty everywhere, and no one was allowed to go to church. No one was allowed to pray. No one was allowed to have or read a Bible. No one was allowed to read poetry, write songs, or or gather together in gatherings that weren't state-sponsored. Churches were shut down. Seminaries were shut down. Bible publishers were forbidden and shut down because... Brezhnev and the socialist-communist mindset in that time of world history said, that was all for the weak. We all need to be strong in our collective government together. Belief in God was outlawed, especially among Brezhnev's leaders. Biographers tell horrible things he did to anyone he found out, even wondering if God exists. And most of all, among his family, and especially his wife Victoria, belief in God was forbidden. As far as expressions of the beast go, all greedy governments, including the one we're in, are expressions of the beast. But this socialist regime under the Soviet Union was the most beastly, or one of the most. Atheism was required by Brezhnev, even though such a thing doesn't exist, and he believed he had successfully eradicated God from his life, that of his wife and family, and all of his country. So it surprised the world at his funeral Full of praise for the man Brezhnev and the Soviet Union in all its charade of glory that at the very end of the funeral when the casket is open, Brezhnev is laying there in the casket. The soldiers are coming to tip the lid closed and move the casket away. The last person who had the opportunity to weep and say goodbye to her husband was Victoria Brezhnev. And just before the lid closes... President Bush, Vice President at the time, noticed how she reached out her hand and made the sign of a cross on his chest. There are no atheists. Seek the Lord now before His wrath falls. Turn to the cross of Christ. Believe in Him Speak of him, worship him, repent of sin. See that he has realized all his promises, and find your great relief in him now and in that day. let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for Revelation 16 and the sobriety of the bulls. Thank you for the mercies laced within them. Thank you for the good and right judgment that you level against sin, unbelief in the world. Oh, I pray. That for me and for us as a church, we would, without hesitation, happily, as it were, bear the cross, carry the cross, live the cross, and the resurrection of Christ all the days of our lives, even if it means hardship in this world. We do not fear the one who can throw us into the grave. We fear you, the one who can throw both body and soul into hell. We ask now that you would empower, enable us to respond to your word with a song of praise and worship that captures your greatness and captures your power. We're sobered by your wrathful judgments upon unbelief and sin, and we're thrilled by the mercy that you bring in it. We ask all this in the precious name of Christ, our risen Lord. Amen.